0: of A Slice of medieval, We have a wonderful treat today because Derek and I have been wondering for, actually I think probably since the podcast first started, who we can talk to about the Battle of Brunenbrough. And then we remembered that a friend of ours has actually written a few books based around the Brunenbrough story. So today we're going to talk to N.J. Porter, who is the author of many historical novels set predominantly in the 7th to 11th century England and Viking Age Denmark. Raised in the shadow of a building that is believed to house the bones of long-dead Kings of Mercia, MJ's writing destiny was set. I love that idea. I grew up near Cunishborough Castle, and that's where my writing destiny was set, so I totally get that. MJ's Brunambra series, King of Kings, Kings of War, and Clash of Kings, is it concluding with Clash of Kings, MJ, or is there another one on the way after that?
1: There will be another one. There will be four of them
0: there will be another one. Yay! Because I've just finished Class of Kings. So I thought, I don't want it to end like that. So, so far, we've got three, waiting for a fourth. And it is absolutely fabulous series. I've spent the whole of December reading it and really enjoyed it. So welcome, MJ Porter. Thank you. Hi Derek, hi Sharon.
2: Good to talk to you.
0: We're very happy to have you. Like I said, we've been looking around for a while for somebody to talk about and so you'd better have your number hat on. You. <laughs> i
1: better, yes. I, I mean, you've spoken to Bernard Cornwall, haven't you? But I think you spoke to him about
0: his... Hundred Years war series, yeah.
1: Yes, yes. Oh, you missed a trick there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think because we've just been speaking to Matthew Harvey. Uh, okay. So we try and mix up the eras so that we don't, you know, have two episodes running in the same era, one after the other. So we we like our variety. We go up and down the medieval time frame. So what drew you to writing about the period around the Battle of Boonambra?
1: So I'm going to be really honest. I can't actually remember. <laughs> so this series has been republished with boldwood books but it's actually based on a series a trilogy that i started writing back in 2014 so i was a bit like well why did i do that now somewhat well I'm very grateful to them somebody liked one of my reviews on Goodreads in this last week and I looked at it and I went oh Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think that's the book that I read that inspired me to do this so it was a book written by a military historian actually about the Battle of Hastings and one of the things that he he kind of laboured was how very small physical features in the landscape could have such a massive impact on a battle. I'm not one of those people that goes out and walks fields. Well, I didn't used to, I do it now. So I never had really considered it. So I think that was a bit of a spark. And I was like, oh, I could I could write about a battle. But that, that wasn't it. That wasn't the only thing. I was also studying for my master's. Um, And I was doing it via distance learning, but I had access to the local university library. And what I did was I basically worked my way along the Saxon shelf. (laughs) So anything that they had, I picked it up and I read it. And I think at that point, I just read uh, Sarah Foote's monograph on Athelstan. So that inspired me. But also, and I hope I'm remembering this right, it was about the time that we had the last vote for Scottish independence going on. And it again, it made me really consider the fact that actually Great Britain, United Kingdom, it's not been united mm. for as long as people kind of seem to yeah. think. We, we used to have Wales, we used to have England, we used to have Scotland, but obviously there was also the smaller kingdoms before that. And I just think that all of these things sort of combined... And then I was looking for a battle. I was like, well, I'll write about Brunnenburg because it's going to give me this opportunity to tell the story of a monumental battle before the United Kingdom was the United Kingdom. So I just want to say this, when I started working on this, it was a very, very long time before we knew that Bernard Cornwall was going to take the treads to Brunnenburg. So I like to get that in because I'm a bit worried people think, oh, she's just doing it because Bernard Cornwall's done it. That's not Mm. true. That's not true. <laughs> it was started a long time before that, and eventually I can remember the book when I was reading the Bernard Cornwall one, and I went, "He's going to take him to Brunnenburg and I was a bit like, mm, "I don't know, I don't know how I feel about that." <laughs> so I've never read the last book yet. I'm saving it until I finish re-editing this series because I don't want anything that happens there to sort of impact what I'm writing so yeah yeah. so that's a very long and complicated story but I think that's what drew me to the period around Brunnenburg, I think
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean it's it's obviously it's very interesting because as you say that that whole idea of the different kings from various places coming together in one place and having a great fight. If only we knew where it was, but we'll come to that later. One of the things that struck me immediately, and I'm sure it strikes anybody reading those books, is the the writing style, which is first person from the point of view of most of the leading protagonists. Now, that is an unusual way, I think we can agree, to to write it. So why did you do it that way? Why did you tell the story that way?
1: I think this wasn't the first book that I wrote when I first started writing, I was writing fantasy. And actually when I look back, my fantasy series is multiple point of views. It's not necessarily first person, but I, I obviously mm. have always liked that style of writing. Again, I can, I can remember I'd written a few books and then I picked up George uh, George R. R. Martin's um, series. I've forgotten the name. What's the name? Game of Thrones? How can I forget that? I picked up Games of Thrones and I got them secondhand and there were four books where it's great. I like a fantasy series that's finished. I'll just read them. (laughs) What a fool. But as I started reading it, he was also doing chapters by, by characters and I went, oh, okay, this is a good idea. He's doing it. I can carry on doing it. It's not that weird. So that sort of stuck with me. The first person element, I think, was slightly different because I, I'd started off doing third person. And I think it's just the immediacy of it. If we don't get inside the heads of the characters, then we can't necessarily work out their motivations and why they're doing it. So I adopted that approach for this book a lot of the reason I think when I look back on it was because originally I wrote it to put on Wattpad I don't know if people Mm. remember Wattpad I'm sure it's still going I think it is still going it's very very popular and the idea was that you shared a chapter a week so there were short sharp chapters that I wrote specifically to put on there it's had so many edits since then but that was where the process started but also I wanted to tell the story from the point of view of every character. Now, a lot of authors adopt this third person narrative and it's often not a historical character and they take them to the battle and they let them see things that are, are playing out. But obviously, <laughs> I couldn't really do that with Brunnenberg because how how is this character to know what's going on in the Scots camp and how's this character to know what's going on with Olaf Gothrisson and things like that. So I I wanted to tell the story from the main point of views. I wanted to give them a voice because people don't know who a lot of these people are. And whilst my expertise lies in England, I wanted to make sure that the, the, mm. the Welsh and the Scottish and the Irish and the Norse, they all had their little bit as well. So it's quite a lot of complicated <laughs> reasons into it. I probably just picked up a pen and started doing it. But with the benefit of hindsight, I can say probably what my motivations were for it. I think it would probably have been easier to offer it in a different way. But I liked giving my characters voices and I've I've been looking back at some of the favorite quotes as well mm. for the characters. And I actually I really like them. I like the things that they say to explain their actions and things like that. So, yes, not a normal way of doing it but I don't know how else you would have done it.
0: (laughs) Not to get everybody's view in
1: it. Exactly, yes. Yeah.
2: I think it works because it does give you that insight, for example, into characters like Athelstan's stepmother.
0: Yes.
2: Which you wouldn't, it's a dimension you wouldn't get probably at all, or very little of. Yes. So things like that, I think, are really, really good.
1: She ended up being in it because when I went back to edit it, I realised that I'd made I'd made Edmund too old. So I had written, I had written this beautiful scene, mm. beautiful scene with Edmund, and he's there and he's witnessing the Treaty of <laughs> Eamon being signed between Constantine of the Scots and Owen of Strathclyde and Athelstan and Howell of the Welsh. And then I went, yeah, but he would have been about two. <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah. He couldn't be there. So that scene, unfortunately... <laughs> taken out <laughs> and I but there were other scenes as well and I thought I need a different voice and I'd written about Yadgifu in the intervening period she's a fascinating character mm-hmm. so I thought I'm gonna put her in there and also it balanced it out a bit because there's a lot of men in it there's very few women so I popped yeah. her in to give yeah. us a little bit of a the feminine side to the story of war essentially and and motherhood and things like that so
2: yeah I think it does it does uh it does help round the whole story, having her in it.
1: It does. There's quite a funny review uh, that somebody wrote where they put, um, I started reading this and after about four chapters, I was really confused. So I went back and I realised, oh, I need to read the chapter headings. And, he said, and then they said, and then it made a lot yeah. more sense. But <laughs> I can, I've, I've done that before. You pick up a book, you just start reading, and then you go, uh, wait a minute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I was a little worried at first when I saw that it was a different person for each chapter because I thought, how am I going to remember who's talking at any particular time? But actually, um, it took me about two chapters and it was like, oh, this is so easy to follow. I don't know how you actually managed to do it, but you always knew who was talking, mm-hmm. which character was narrating that chapter. You just knew. Yes. You've managed to make everybody so distinct. That you don't have to go back and look at the beginning of the chapter if you've left it you know if you've had to stop mid-chapter mm-hmm. you don't have to go back to the beginning and have a look at who's talking you just know and it is so well done it's one of the things I was worried about when I started reading it but I got into it so quickly
1: I had the same concerns because <laughs> <laughs> it's quite difficult because they're all ambitious men yeah so how do you make them sound differently mm. um I think it helped that some of the character ages are yeah. all quite different. So we've got Constantine, mm. who's kind of an old, he's described in the Brunnenberg poem as old and hoary <laughs> or, or old and old hoary man or something <laughs> like that. So you're a bit like, okay, so he's an older character. Athelstan's kind of the young upstart, but he's also not because he's older than, you, than mm-hmm. you think he is. And then we've got Howell of the Welsh as well. He's an older character. So I just, I quite enjoyed it. Um, and there's Owen of Strathclyde now actually we don't know if it was Owen of Strathclyde that put his name to the treaty at Eamon or if it was an Owen from one of the Welsh kingdoms Mm -hmm. who's not recorded elsewhere Mm -hmm. so I had to make a judgment call with that should I choose this one or should I choose that one and I chose to make him from Strathclyde and I chose to make him quite under Constantine's thumb and that gave me Mm -hmm. quite a lot of uh, interesting perspectives to do with to do with him and you know he's a bit kowtowed and He's told what to do, essentially. So I was looking back.
2: Resentful. He's quite resentful. (laughs) I was
1: looking back the other day and there's a great line where it says, um, a month ago, I would have thought I had no master. And now I find I have two. And this is after he's signed the Mm. treaty. So Constantine's basically said, sign the treaty. And Athelstan said, you need to sign the treaty. So he's like, Right. well I'll sign the treaty but I don't want to <laughs> yeah
0: I felt sorry for Owen enough Clyde, actually all the way through I felt sorry for him he was one of the more sympathetic characters I think <laughs> I don't think I felt sorry for Constantine at any stage because I just kept say I just get thinking well you've brought it on yourself. <laughs>
1: Yes, yeah, he does sort of present like that, doesn't he? Yeah, he's quite scheming. Mm-hmm. I like I like all of them. I was trying to think who's my favourite character in the series, and actually, I don't think I have one. I've had a few people who, who say they feel a lot of sympathy for Olaf gothrisson as well, so he's the, the Norse mm. leader, but I've had quite a lot of fun with him as well.
0: <laughs> so there are three books. The first, King of Kings, follows Athelstan as he establishes his rule in England and supremacy of the British Isles. I'd never seen that before. Actually, I'd never, I'd never thought about how much he actually stamped his presence, not just on England but on the whole British Isles. So, what did Athelstan have to do to achieve this?
1: This is a really interesting question. When you read the non-fiction books, it's kind of presented as fact. This is what happened. Yeah, there's a lot of people who don't take the time to sort of explain why it happened. So essentially what we get is Athelstan is proclaimed, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, King of Mercia when his father dies. His half-brother is supposed to become King of Wessex, but he then dies 16 days later. So the story then goes that Athelstan is eventually allowed to become King of Wessex and King of Mercia. And then when he undergoes his coronation, which is about a year later in 925, He becomes king of the English. And there's a big thing. This is the first time we've actually got the English. Before that, we've had the smaller kingdoms of Mercia and Wessex and the East Angles and Northumbria. So he does something nobody else has done. But equally at the same time, in the kingdom of the Scots, Constantine is consolidating. He's becoming... king of the whole country as we would know it today. And also in Wales, we've got similar things going on. So we've got quite a few little kingdoms, but we've got Idwal of Gwynedd to the north, who's quite powerful. And then we've got his cousin, Howell, who's called Howell of the West Welsh, and they also want to consolidate. So they're trying to do it, Constantine's trying to do it, but Athelstan's successful at it. And not only is he successful at it, But he becomes very renowned. He's incredibly uh, influential. He's got people coming to his court. Apparently, it was very metropolitan. His half-sisters marry into East and West Francia and also into a couple of noble families over there. So there's something about England at this time that makes it better, as it were, than everywhere else. And I think it is the cohesive force. Whatever he has got, whatever he's done, He's brought together these people. Now, a lot of people would say he was the king of Wessex and he's a Wessex. He's from the house of Wessex. But there is this belief that he was raised in Mercia and he was raised there by his aunt, Lady Athelflaed. Although David Dunville, very uh, eminent historian, says we've only got William of Malmesbury that tells us this. So it could all be utter rubbish and it might not have happened. Mm -hmm. But if that is what happened, if Athelstan was beloved in Mercia and then he went to Wessex, he's kind of uniting those two kingdoms so he brings something different to his father and his grandfather and in that he he almost brings Wessex to Mercia not Mercia to Wessex and I think that's quite powerful because Mercia has been fighting the Viking raiders for almost longer Mm. than Wessex has so just think he's got this big cohesive force he's got this big reach and it was uh, it was accepted and I think it was that that he brought brought to power he was kind of the big power at that time some people have said he was like yeah. uh, at that point england was the successor state to to charlemagne's great empire um because he was that powerful that cohesive everybody else is fighting the raiders they're all fighting amongst themselves and he isn't so I think that's maybe what it is. But like I said, it was a really interesting question and I really had to think about a suitable answer for it. All the historians will just tell you he just did. So we need to sort of work out why he did. And I think that's probably why.
2: He certainly seems to have had a power base in Mercia, and it's difficult to explain how that would have come about if he didn't have a very close connection to it, seems to me.
1: I know. and And, and I agree with that. I think there's definitely something a little bit different about him. So... I think in my mind I kind of imagine him taking part in in the battles with the with the Viking raiders and he's fighting for Mercia not necessarily Wessex mm. and he's bringing together and he's winning renown and people are flocking to him and you know he's he's almost designated his aunt uh the Lady of Athelflaed's successor so I think that I think that I do I mean I'm a Mercian I'm going to be honest, I'm a Mercian. I want Mercia to be the best at everything, but I think that in this there is possibly that that potential for that was what the reason was, and this year actually sees the mm. anniversary of Athelstan becoming king of the English. It's the let me get this right one thousand one hundredth anniversary of his coronation um so I think that people are looking at him, and I know that Michael Wood is going to be doing a talk about Athelstan. Mm. And he's going to be talking about whether it was him as king of Mercia that was the sort of defining moment for
2: him. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the second book, um, Kings of War, uh, demonstrates how far Athelstan's influence spreads, and some of this takes place in Ireland. In this book, so so, how did you research that? Was it was it harder? to research the bit in Ireland or it, how did you do it that? It was
1: hard so I'm not an expert on Ireland and I'm not an expert on the Welsh Kingdoms and I'm not an expert on what's going on in what would become Scotland. I, some people would say I'm not an expert on what's going on in, in England but I understand the source material for what was happening in England. I don't understand source material very well in anywhere else and it's if it's complicated in England with the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle then it's it's much more complicated everywhere else so yes Mm -hmm. it was really really hard (laughs) the other problem that you have when you're using multiple sources if you look at the English source you're going to find all these historical people called one name so you're going to get Olaf if you go to Ireland they're going to be called something else they might be called uh Am- Amlaib, i am be saying that all wrong because I don't speak Irish but they might be called that, if you go somewhere else they might be called Anlaf, now this is all mm. the same character mm. but mm. if you're looking at sources that are that are predominantly written by a historian with an interest in the other countries, they're going to use the names that they're known by in those countries so you've got to work mm. out who everybody is, which is hard and <laughs> it's not very helpful either in that you get so many people called Olaf they're all called Olaf. Every Norseman ever is called Olaf. (laughs) So one of the ways I got around that was to actually take advantage of the fact that to an English speaker, Olaf and Anlaf look completely different. Olaf, Anlaf and Amlaib look even more different, but they are all got the same name. So I took advantage of that. The other problem, as I've already said, is that they often don't offer an explanation as to why anything happened basically, because they don't know. There's not mm. enough information. But so then you, <laughs> yeah. when you're writing fiction, you've got to try and thread the needle, as it were, and put all the bits together and see why things are happening. So, yes, it was really hard. I don't know why I did it. When I went back, I was amazed by the things that I'd done. Um, and what I've done recently is I've tried to find all my research yeah. books for it to see what I was doing. And I just have like lists of things. This equals that equals this equals that. And I think, okay, so that's the way my mind works. It's like a mathematical (laughs) equation. (laughs) It was, it was fun. I made a few mistakes. I constantly learned things. So when I was doing the re-edit, I had to go back and do some more research to find explanations or to at least find an explanation in my mind as to why certain things happened. But yes, It's not uh, an easy task, I will put it like that.
2: It never is, though, is it, really? Even, I mean, when I was writing in the 15th century, I mean, I thought it would be fairly straightforward from the point of view of sources and so on, but actually it's a nightmare. And you've got some events which are told as if they're they're no relation to the other accounts Mm. at all. They just miss everything out. And you think, well, which one's right? So... uh, uh, further back in the period you're writing in must be a complete nightmare
1: it is and i think there's a lot of misconceptions and i admit i had the same misconception especially about the anglo-saxon chronicle i think i think most people just assume somebody a monk was sitting there and every year at the end of the year they would just write down what they thought was important but that doesn't Mm. seem to be what happened it seems to have been written in chunks So then, obviously, you've you've already got the benefit of hindsight going into what we're actually being told. So you need to know when it was written down, but it's almost impossible to know mm. when things were written down.
0: And then they throw a spanner in the works because one of them says it was too tedious to tell.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and there's that thing, isn't there, where they always assume that you know. Yeah. <laughs> You're a bit like I i don't know one of the (laughs) things that gives me a lot of bother is when you read the anglo-saxon chronicle everything's related to a religious festivity Mm. or festival
0: and you and and then you get the you wonder why the english are obsessed with the weather and then you read the anglo-saxon chronicle and they're obsessed with the weather always obsessed (laughs) with the weather there's
1: a lot of weather phenomenon but then you look at it and you go okay so what do i remember i mean up in northumberland we had that huge storm that took down loads of trees. When was it now? Twenty twenty one storm and wind So, you know, I that storm really means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. But down south or somewhere else, perhaps it doesn't have the same impact. But to me it means something because it knocked down all the trees at Cragside and I love visiting Cragside. So it's was a bit yes. was a bit upsetting so yes you go well nobody else
2: Mm. knows about that well the weather's a marker isn't it as you say for for various people yeah oh that was the time when it was really really cold and there was ice the river froze whatever and in those days rivers froze more than they do today because Mm -hmm. of the circumstances of the time like the thames for example uh which didn't have the big embankments and so on and then you've got things like strong winds which which did a lot more Mm -hmm. damage then. Than they do now and you know it's just the nature of the time that that people were more vulnerable to the weather drought crops failed you know it, it's all about that isn't it that's that's the the seed of life it's all yeah. about yes the basics of life Yeah,
0: it was much more significant in their life the weather yeah I mean I remember yeah. in the 70s when we used to have we couldn't have Roast potatoes at a certain time of the year. It had to be boiled potatoes because these kind of potatoes didn't roast well. You had cauliflower in winter because you didn't get it in summer. And you only had lettuce at certain times of the year. We have everything all year round now. There's no restrictions on what vegetables you eat.
2: This is live oral history, folks.
0: (laughs) You heard it from
2: Sharon Bennett Connolly.
0: (laughs) only 40 years ago, you had seasonal vegetables. They didn't yes. have freezers, you know. They just dug a hole in the ground if they wanted to keep things cold. So they were living hand to mouth. They didn't have potatoes at all. No, no
1: rose potatoes, <laughs> no chips. It must have been a nightmare. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know. How did they cope with it? And in in fact, I mean, especially at the moment with with everything that's going on with the weather, you could look at it and say we've almost lost sight of yes. the impact that the weather has. Mm. We've sort of yeah. think that we should be able to defeat it. And sometimes I think that we're, that's kind of wrong. We need to accept... The impact that the weather has on things. Yeah. Be more accepting of it than we perhaps are. I've been thinking that quite recently. Yeah. Well, I've yes. had to
0: accept it because I can't get into Gainsborough at the minute because the river's flooded. <laughs> so, exactly. just, I just—I wonder if my shopping delivery, my supermarket delivery, will arrive tomorrow.
1: Twenty-first <laughs> century yeah. problems. The river's flooded. Can my delivery come? Write that down in a
0: chronicle. <laughs> <column. laughs>
2: anyway, back to the podcast.
0: Oh, laugh, <Olaf's> scabby head. <laughs> 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 read his name without laughing blessing poor olaf scabby head i've got this horrible image of poor olaf scabby head
1: <laughs> olaf scabby head and um yeah i know what question you're gonna ask me and i don't know why <laughs> i don't know why but going back to my uh my earlier thing i wonder if it's because they were all called olaf is it the only way that they could differentiate them uh, you know, Olaf Scabbyhead. Olaf, not Scabbyhead. Son of Olaf Scabbyhead. I found his name in um, Claire Downham's book on the Norse at the time, and when I came across it, I went, "Oh, that's such a good name." So she, she, she'd given the the Irish of it, which is got. I can't say it starts with a C, which I could have used, yeah. but I went, nah, I'm going to use Scabbyhead. I'm going to go with what what he what what the translation would be, because it does frame such an amazing picture mm. of what he might have been like." I think now that you've said that, I should have spent more time maybe having him like pick it or something, but I didn't. Now I'm a bit gutted that I've only just thought
0: about
2: that. Might be a bit (laughs) off putting. (laughs) He's
0: had such graphic names. (laughs) either the Boneless is the one that springs to mind (laughs) because it's like, why boneless? How?
1: (laughs) Yes, and it gives the fiction writer such uh, a heartache because you've got to think of why. So I've written about. Spain fork beard. Why was it called that? Was it just beautifully done? So it, that's what it looked like. They didn't. They didn't have forks, did they? Did they? <laughs> so then you then you left scrabbling around, going, "Well, there must be a reason why he has got this name." So you know, I'll have to come up with a reason for it.
0: I don't know, love scabby head. he are going. I'm six foot two tall, and it's my head you're you're naming me after. just because I've got one scab
1: very devastated that i didn't have him picking his scabs all the time but it is a fabulous name
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway moving away from characters that are scabby (laughs) throughout the series you've you've referred to or you've included elfwyn the daughter of uh, Athelflad, lady of the mercians and and this is someone that that as far as i'm aware in historical terms we're not entirely certain of her fate so why did you include her in the story and how did you present her?
1: Okay, so um, Alfred, the, the daughter of Athelflad, is one of the another characters that I've written about. So I was quite intrigued by her because the story, the historical record will tell you that she succeeded her mother as the Lady of the Mercians and then a year later or six months later, there's a bit of a problem with the dating her uncle, Edward the Elder who's Athelstan's father, marches into Mercia and takes her away essentially and and that's kind of the last that we hear of her, which is a bit of a shame because it's quite a monumental thing for a woman to be succeeded by another woman However, there has been some research done, and it's really, really tentative. There's a possibility that she didn't become a nun, which is what is quite often accepted, or she wasn't murdered, which is less accepted, but is a possibility. And that is that she actually married a very powerful elderman. And this elderman uh, who is known as Athelstan the Half-King, which is great because he's called Athelstan. So we've got <laughs> Athelstan and Athelstan. I purposely mentioned it and when it came back to me, my editor, because I've put a line that said it's very confusing for everybody but us. And my editor put a little note in that said, this sounds like the author's voice. Mm. And I'm, it is the author's voice, but I think it's, it's me accepting to my audience that it is confusing. It's a bit of an apology.
0: I noticed that. You do mention that. I think, is it Constantine who says too many, af- another Athelstan? Yes, <laughs> another Athelstan.
1: And there's another Athelstan as well. When I'm editing book four, I've just come across another Athelstan, and I thought, oh, (laughs) no, there's more Athelstans than I can can do anything with. So there's this this possibility that she married this very, very powerful uh, elderman, and this is what I've explored Mm. through telling her story. Um, which I did after I wrote the initial trilogy for Brunnenburg. So then when I was re-editing it and adding a lot more content, I thought, oh, I'm going to include her in this because her husband, if he was a husband, is a very important character in the rest of the books. And it also yeah. plays into this Mercian idea because Athelstan may have been raised with her. So I, I kind of I wanted to explore it and to see how it played out over time. Sometimes I can't do that in my head, but if I write out the characters and let that happen, it gives me quite an interesting perspective on what's happening. So I think that's the freedom of fiction. When you're writing nonfiction, you can't really do that. (laughs) But if you're you're playing around with fiction, you can have a look. Is is this what might have happened? So if that is what happened, and that is what she became, the wife, she was the wife of the Elderman of the East Angles, so she wasn't related to Mercia in this case, But her husband's family had been associated with Mercia. So, you know, they might have grown up together as well. There's that possibility. But um, if that is what happened, then she married this man. They had four sons. They were very, very powerful. The husband earns the name Athelstan Half King. Now, it's always been said it's because he was so powerful. He was so powerful. He was half a king. What if that's not what it was? What if it's because he was married into the royal family? He oh. was married to the king's cousin, it's that Athelstan. <laughs>
2: yeah, it, it could be that he was just very short, a sort of hobbit <laughs> sized.
0: Yes, yeah, I didn't realize it was that Athelstan. Oh, wow! So, yeah, so it just, I just had a full circle moment because I've I <laughs> mentioned Athelstan half king before, and so ah, oh,
1: okay, so we've got a scabby head <laughs> yeah, and a half king. <laughs> So I've explored this idea so what what I've done in the stories about uh, Elfin is I've I've retold the story of what might have happened in Mercia after the death of her mother and then I do have her there's no spoilers here I do have her shipped off by her uncle and she goes into captivity and I, hopefully no spoilers again at the end of the book Athelstan comes and rescues her and takes her away and they become friends and she helps him become mm. king. So this is in the, mm. the other books, not the yeah. the series. So I wanted to maintain that consistency because I've written quite a lot of books that are all set in the same time mm. period now. Yeah. So I've I've got two things. I have to try and get historical fact correct, but I'll argue about any facts at this period because I don't think there really are any, but I also have to get my sort of creation of what's going on correct. So I, mm. I bring her in, she's not a massive character, in this series but she's there so she's sort of bolstering the the royal family and Athelstan in particular so yeah I had quite a lot of fun with her
0: especially in that first book is he he does mention her a couple of times and that he's got her support and it does make sense that she had been married into East Anglia rather than Mercia because if she was in Mercia unscrupulous eldermen could have used her against Athelstan
1: they could have done, yes. And there's also a, a sort of another to explore as well. So, Athelstan marries some of his half sisters into different monarchies. So, his natural sister, there's mm. a possibility mm. they were twins, marries the King of York, Citric. And obviously, his half sisters marry into East and West Francia and into some noble families. So, what about if he did marry his cousin into the mm. Kingdom of the East Angles? That would have also bought. Mm. The kingdom of the East Angles into the sphere of England and made made that connection. So there, I think there is there's a lot of possibilities to explore. There, there's absolutely no proof, unfortunately. No, but it does make sense. It does. It make does sense. make sense. And in a in a fictional environment, mm-hmm. I think it makes quite a lot of sense to explore that. So the only other possibility is that she did become a nun, and there is a charter from the reign of Edmund, who's Athelstan's successor, but also. Elfwyn's cousin, mm. where there is a charter given to an Elfwyn. It could be her, it might not be her. We don't know. So there's a there's a lot going on, but I like I like this idea of giving Elfwyn her own story when she's been forgotten about her mother gets everything. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> writes about Athelflaed. She was great, she was this, she was whatever. And I'm not saying she wasn't, but I kind of it was a good way to return her to the narrative and maybe have her do something else other than either disappear or become a nun.
0: I must say I did like that I liked that Elfwyn was in it and that she had a life I thought, good
1: (laughs) Exactly Sometimes we can give people things that they might not have had (laughs) <laughs> yeah. We can redress the balance. We can make it right. When we're writing fiction, we can do that. Yeah, exactly. And
0: the thing is, Elfman was a woman and they rarely wrote about women anyway.
1: Exactly. And she's really rare anyway, because she does get mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So her name is in there. Mm.
0: There's
1: loads of other women, of the, as I've discovered, of the era who mm. are not mentioned no. in it. At all, so you yes. get Alfred's. Alfred's wife is named Athelflaed's named, her daughter's named, and then two of Athelstan's half sisters, uh, one of Athelstan's half sisters and one of, and his actual sister, are mentioned mm. but not named. So the marriages are discussed, mm. but their name is not given. Mm. So there you go. That's it. Yeah. There's no one else. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's actually not true. There are a couple of Abesses who are named later yes. on in the period, but but that's mm. it.
0: So the Battle of Brunhambur, that was a big undertaking to write. Why did you decide on the Wirral as the location? I hope that's not too big a spoiler.
1: I don't think that's too big a spoiler. So yes, the Battle of Brunhambur, as we, as I think we've already said, there's actually been more discussion about where it took place than the significance of what Athelstan achieved at Brunhambur. The problem is we don't know where Brunhambur was. There's nowhere called Brunhambur anymore. There has been a move to place it at the Wirral. If you look on an old map, uh, the Robert Morden map, which I think is the 17th century, it's very confidently labelled as Brunnenburg, not very far from Bamborough in Northumberland. It's very confident. It's just there with like your little little Martin. Oh, okay, that's fine. And then other places have also been mentioned. Now, I chose the Wirral because with my fiction head, I couldn't get over the fact that they're anticipating all these Norse under Olaf Gothrisson alongside Olaf Scabbyhead, getting to the eastern side of uh, northern England. What, what? How would they get there? What, what did they do? Mm. Did they take their ships all around the top of Scotland and risk going through all the, the outer isles, which you know, it's quite rough mm. up there. Did they come down the bottom of England? Did they travel over land from where they came ashore, which would have been close to the Wirral because that was how they would have made their way to York. So to me, it didn't make sense for them to be anywhere else. So I thought it would perhaps take place at the, at the closest location in the UK that they could get to from Dublin, essentially. So that was why I chose that. I know historians have got lots of other reasons why they chose it all to do with, with naming conventions and other things. But to me, it was, it was what made sense in my mind when I was trying to place Mm. them. Now, how I kept all the characters in the right place, I don't know. As I said, this is an old book that I edited and massively rewrote, but as I was reading it, it was like it'd been written by a different person. <laughs> I couldn't re- I've written so many books, I couldn't remember all the details. There are two scenes when I was editing that completely threw me. I had forgotten that was how I had written the battle. I don't I slightly spoilery. There's one of them where you're a bit concerned about who's just been killed. You're a bit like, mm. "Uh, wait a minute, that's not what happened. And then there was another bit where I got to it and I went, Athelstan's not there. He's not in the in the thrust of the battle line. He's not fighting everybody. And I thought I'm gonna have to massively rewrite this, but it all makes sense as you go through. It did. So that worked, but how I kept them separate. I think I just, I just had, I think it was their characters. I think that was what spoke to me. So Constantine's probably too old to be fighting. He could potentially have been into his sixties. I can't imagine the. I can't imagine him fighting. He could have been. He could have been. And then the the um, accord that he reaches with Olaf Guthrithson. They're really uneasy with one another. Like they're they're allies, but they don't really want to be allies. But they've got a purpose, which is to defeat Athelstan of the English. And I think it was what their ideas were and what they wanted to achieve that kept them separate. And then obviously we've got poor old Owen of Strathclyde, who is somehow in the thick of it all and probably doesn't want to be there. (laughs) Let's be honest, I don't think he wants to be there. So no. I wish I could remember the process that I went through. It probably involved lots of maps and drawing things and putting them in different places. Mm. When I went back and I did this massive edit on it, I put in a lot more geographical details to do with i'm always rubbish at rivers and seas i never know which way around they are <laughs> you, you can spend a lot of time saying yeah the the sun rises in the the in seas the, are the big bit, <laughs> and the rivers
2: are the narrow bit." <laughs> the sun
1: rises in the west you're like no that's not what happens that isn't what happens <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think one of the overriding things was it is written that the battle took all day mm-hmm. it was a long battle it wasn't you know over in five minutes so you've got to bring in that that it wasn't just the English were definitely going to win. We didn't know that, so you've got to put mm. in the shuff and the and the and the, the fighting, and maybe they're going to win, or maybe they're they're going to win, and I, and I think that's probably what also kept the characters in the
0: right place. Hopefully. It worked. Whatever you did, it worked. <laughs> it was really well done and it was very ab- absorbing, you know. Because also you just got into what one character's doing and then you change the chapter and you're reading another character. Exactly,
1: exactly. I know and you oh, want to know what's happening there and then you suddenly you're taken out of that and, and you go somewhere else. So yeah. It was it was really interesting for me to go back and edit it and see what I'd done before and add in all mm. these extra details that really filled it out and mm. made it much better I'm really pleased with the mm. the finished product I was a bit daunted to start with and then I went actually I'm gonna have some fun with this so yeah I did
0: one of my one of my thoughts at the time was if one of these characters that she's actually speaking through gets killed how do you do that? Because this to saying what's happening and he's just about to, you know, it was illuminating because it was like, that's always been my thing with first person is that you can't really describe their death because mm-hmm. they're dying so they haven't got time to do it, sort of thing. But it really worked. Thank you. I'm glad it worked
2: shakespeare managed it though he just the, the character just says i am slain
1: <laughs> there is that thing how do you, how do you do it what do you do do you labor the point do you uh, that's a big thing that they're about you know back in I think it was back in the 80s big death scenes everybody wanted a big death Mm. scene all the actors and actresses you're a bit like well how do you how do you do it you can't keep oh woe it's me there's a great big (laughs) fight taking place all around them
2: (laughs) yeah just get off stage yes I think the the battles more difficult in a way because we don't know exactly where it is because for most battles some incorrectly but for most battles you've got maps and plans of the actual battle where everybody was and so on But there's not that much for this battle simply because it's still being sort of vociferously argued over so yeah it makes it more difficult i know when i wrote battles if i had i had so much information about who was where and so on not always but mostly that it was much easier to visualise than a sort of blank space, really. Mm.
1: Oh, you see, I just think that's just an excuse to make it up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah.
0: And of course, the the phrase "never greater slaughter" means <laughs> death everywhere. Great, yes. I can kill everybody. <laughs> When,
1: when I was working on the editor, at one point, I'd put, there was, the, the force was so big, there were so many thousands, and then, and then I'm rubbish at keeping track of certain things. When I write, I get a bit carried away, and then I go, I don't know how many people I said were here. So, then I put in a different figure, and then another figure, I can remember sending it back to my editor and going, how, how big should it be? <laughs> I don't know if I got a response, I think I had to make the decision myself. <laughs>
2: Well, the other thing about that period, or in fact anyone in the past, more or less, uh, short of modern times, is that numbers were vastly overestimated yeah. most of the time. So it's very difficult to know how many were actually involved yes. in these battles.
1: Yes, there's a there's a, a later source, Simeon of Durham, if that's how you say his name. Just mm. he he says something like there were 650 Norse ships. So if there were 650 North ships, how many people? If you if you work roughly, there's 50 people to a ship. Sometimes there's more. That's mm. a massive, massive yeah. force. But what, what you notice, especially with, with, I think, battles in the past, is the, the greater the distance in time to when it actually took place, the bigger the numbers become. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but also most of the people describing the battle haven't got the foggiest idea about a battle anyway. They don't know how many. They probably don't even know. You know how many how many a ship could hold. So yeah. they just pluck a number most of the time out of six hundred and fifty in that time period means there were a lot of ships. And that's yeah. all it means, really. The other
0: thing is, Simeon of Durham was writing from Durham, so he probably wasn't there at the time. So he heard this from somebody else. Now, what if that person wasn't a monk and hadn't been taught to count beyond the number ten? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, Simeon of Durham also thinks it took place on the northeast. So mm. you know. He thinks. I think. It, I think he said there were that many ships, and they came up the Tyne or something. I don't know. So yes, there's a lot going on. So yeah. d- perhaps don't trust Simeon of Durham. <laughs> I'm very. I'm very wary of any because we can't really call them a historian. Pseudo historians that says I was told this or I read this or mm. so you a bit like why don't you just be honest? I'm making this up.
0: Yeah. And you also have to be careful of the primary sources. They're called primary sources, but like William of (laughs) Malmesbury was writing in the 12th century. So how's he a primary source for the 9th and 10th centuries? (laughs) Yeah.
2: He also made stuff up, basically. (laughs) He
1: did make stuff up. And that's something that really, really frustrates me, because if you haven't studied the period and you don't know, if you read somebody's account of it and they say William of Malmesbury tells us this and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that, then you've muddled those two sources, neither of which are probably contemporary, but you're almost presenting them as that's fact mm, you can't really do mm. that you've got to question yeah. why he was writing you've got to question why they were writing you've got to question why this information has even survived so yes <laughs> this is what I mean I will argue about any facts <laughs> any fact from the period
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean I think uh, you've got a question the trouble is you get to the point I found this when looking at the fifth century is that you get to the point where you don't actually believe any of the sources at all. Uh, But then if you say, well, I'm just to ignore them all, (laughs) you've got nothing, nothing at all. So, (laughs) You know, it's you have to yeah. make a judgment, don't you?
0: Do, you do, you do. And then you
2: have to throw in the bias as well
0: and say, Why did they say there were six hundred and fifty ships? Yeah.
2: Exactly,
1: yeah. <laughs> why why are they telling us this? What what purpose is it? Are they just are they just basically a fiction writer and they're just having a bit of fun and they want to make sure that people read about this <laughs> or are they sort of Trying to prove a point somewhere down the line.
0: Trying to make it look like a greater victory than it was when in the end it was actually just two blokes having a fistical yeah. fight. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the Battle of Brunenborough, actually. It's two blokes going, it's your fault. No, it isn't. It's your fault.
2: <laughs> I think there were at least five blokes. So
0: there were quite a few there. <laughs> and the woman on the side going, it started yeah. it.
1: <laughs> exactly yeah handbags at dawn and all that but yes i don't i don't know yes you do end up not trusting anything Mm. so the advantage of being a fiction writer is you can pick and choose what you decide to use as you're not trusting it but you know (laughs) what you weave your narrative
0: around
2: yeah yeah okay so so after brunnenberg athelstan is is kind of supreme but it, it's still a bit fragile isn't it and and two years later or so, somewhere like that he he dies so his successor his half-brother Edmund what I mean in, in Clash of Kings I think you focused on on that period after after Brunnenberg so what are the problems that Edmund has to deal with after that huge sort of success at, at Brunnenberg? I
1: think Edmund had to deal with a number of things first of all he had to deal with the fact that he was young. He was only 18, as it said, when he became king. He had to contend with his brother's reputation, which I imagine was massive. Mm. And he was mm. left with all the, the, the aftermath. You know, Athelstan won at Brunnenburg, but, you know, what about the people that lost? They're not going to leave that. They're not going to say that's it. It's not as if history stopped at Brunanbur and since Brunnenburg Athelstan's king of the English the Norse are happy in Dublin Constantine of the Scots is happy in his kingdom that that's not what's going to happen they're all going to push and shove and test Mm -hmm. it so because obviously we don't know all the details what happens afterwards it's not really a spoiler is Edmund faces a massive backlash so we don't know whether it started whilst Athelstan was still alive or whether Olaf Gothrisson took advantage of Athelstan's death but he very quickly decides he's mm. going to counter the gains made at Brunnenberg he wants York back because Athelstan took York in 927 and he's held it ever since but Olaf thinks it's his birthright he wants it so Edmund has to contend with his brother's death all these people want him back what Athelstan has, ta- has taken from them essentially and he's got to do it at a time well in the book i make it very immediate and it's winter because athelstan dies in october so everything sort of seems to tumble not edmund's way and i think the best way you can describe it is athelstan starts reigning in 924 and he dies in 939 so he's got 15 years to accomplish what he accomplished at brunhamber edmund no. doesn't <laughs> have that time he's got to try and hold on to what his brother gains whilst fighting against all these people that want it back as well. So he's young, he's untried. Athelstan has had his hand in so many pies. He's in East Francia, he's in West Francia. There is a belief that his fleet might have been sent to assist his nephew, who was Louis IV of the West Franks. They're having a fight with the East Franks. His sisters married. His half sisters married into West Francia. His other half sisters married into East Francia. There's big family thing. He's got cousins who are living in um, Flanders. Yeah. It is Flanders is yeah, it? Yeah, it? Flanders. Is it Flanders? <laughs> yeah, it was Flanders. Thank you. I, I suddenly went. Was it Brittany? No, it wasn't Brittany. It is in Flanders. So there's like the whole family argument going on over there, and yet Edmund is faced with with Olaf Guthrum. Oh, I don't think I'd want to face Olaf Guthrum on the on the on the, the path to mm. vengeance. I think that it would be it would be <laughs> too much. So I sort of look at it as everything that Athelstan's accomplished, Edmund then has to do again. So the problems are monumental. Mm. I think the only thing he's got going for him is nobody says actually you shouldn't be king. Yeah. There's no Disagreement in England as to who the successor is going to be, and that is kind of you've got to say that that's one of the good things about Athelstan. He may not have expected to die; it may have been unexpected. We don't know why he died, which annoyed me because I then had to come up <laughs> with a whole scene as to why he died. Was he wounded at Brunnenburg? Was there something else? So I had to sort of cobble together what happened as to why he died. But Edmund does become king, and he's got the support of Athelstan the elderman already who may or may not have been married to his cousin. You see what I mean, see what I'm doing. But yeah, so Athelstan's a big, big blaze of glory. And then I feel really sorry for poor Edmund.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting when you say, we don't know why Athelstan died. If you're a historian, you can just say, we don't know why he died. But often often people say, well, it's all right for fiction writers. They can make stuff up. But the thing is, you have to make something up. You can't just leave it. Oh, I don't know why he died. Let me move on. Uh, you have to actually explain it in fictional terms, whereas a historian doesn't.
1: Exactly. And it's quite difficult.
2: Otherwise, you've got a hole.
1: <laughs> exactly. You've got a hole. So in the original, the, the way I originally wrote this trilogy was the first book, The Battle of Brunnenberg, and then we start book two and Edmund's King. So I don't actually explore what happens after mm. Brunnenburg and I don't explore what happens to Athelstan. So this is all something that I had to write in. And mm. in fact, uh, I think uh, Lady Yagafu is one of the characters that really helped me here. She really pulled it together for me because she's kind of steady.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: she's, she's confident. She's been a member of the Wessex royal family for two decades at this point. She's probably still a reasonably young woman. 'Cause they think she was quite young when she mm. when she married the king. So she might only have been like just about forty or just slightly into her forties. But I kind of took her as the stage. She knows what's going on. She supported Athelstan. She can support her own son, because Athelstan was her stepson and, mm. and bring it all together. But yeah. What how how'd you kill a king when you don't know? So <laughs> it's also very interesting because in the sources you don't get told why he died. So we know he wasn't probably murdered because we're not told that and the anglo-saxon chronicle does like to mention when somebody gets murdered (laughs) even if
0: there's just a suggestion of a murder
1: (laughs) exactly exactly we know he probably didn't die in battle because we're not told that and i think that we would have been told Mm. so it must have been something else so i had to sort of play around with that but yeah fiction you've got to go oh well it can't be that but it could have been that
0: yeah yeah we non-fiction writers, so <laughs> it's so easy.
2: You do, <laughs>
1: you do, you do. You don't have to explain anything. I mean, other than, I mean, other than the fact you have to understand your source material and you have to be able to go, it could have been this, it could have been that. Sometimes <laughs> you don't have to go, and this happened because of that.
0: We can just put all the different alternatives down and leave it to the reader to decide.
1: Right. Exactly,
0: <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, or just say, I think it was probably this, but who knows? <laughs> Yes, yes, I know, I know.
1: So much easier. And then you
0: remember that we have to do the footnotes as well. Not so much easier. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, footnotes. Footnotes and indexing. Yep. Oh, it's a whole new fresh hell I've never done Indexing before. is a nightmare.
2: <laughs> I hate indexing.
1: Yeah, Derek, when are you doing a non-fiction book? I keep book? crying.
2: Well, uh, at the moment I am actually. I am <laughs> oh, doing okay. something. Yeah, I'm, uh, what am I doing? Uh, I'm, I'm writing up my Wars of the Roses podcast into a book. Oh, crap. So as a sort of guide to the Walls of the Roses, Idiot's Guide to the Walls of the Roses.
0: They've
1: been very popular, those books. (laughs) That sort of book. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm doing that at the moment. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. We're
1: going to make him index it
0: first, and then
1: we'll see what
2: he
0: does. (laughs) I mean, the thing is, indexing is so hard, but it's essential. Well, it's just... And especially when you've got... It's really hard when you've got, like... When I did... um, Defenders of the Norman Crown. I had different men named William de Warren. Oh, <laughs> and, you, and then you have to put like a little yeah. explanation
1: as well, and you're a bit like, right. So what what should this person be most known for? Because I've got a lot of characters who are called. I've got a lot of Athelflades. Mm. That was really a popular, name. Yeah. You know, you've got to try and make it as clear as possible for your reader mm. as well as for you.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, I've just done Women of the Anarchy, which is out um, January 15, and. There are so many Matildas. (laughs) I could just have done an index just of Matildas and just left everybody else out. Nobody would have been bothered about anybody else except maybe Stephen. So, MJ, what's next? Flash of Kings is out now, by the time this broadcast goes out. What's coming next?
1: Okay. My problem is never finding a next project. (laughs) So I'm currently editing the final book in the series, which doesn't have a name yet. I've got an idea what I want to call it, but it might get changed, so I'm not going to mention it in the hope that maybe it won't get changed and I can take re- take responsibility for it. I'm also writing another book in the Last King series, which has got so many different names, but I tend to call it the Last King series, but officially it's called The Mercy and Ninth Century, um, so they're my sweary, fighty books uh, featuring mm-hmm. Cole Wolf II, who I've discovered should be called Chol Wolf, apparently, but That doesn't work for me, so he's Cole Wolf. And then my other character, Isol, who some people people call him Ickle, but he's Hmm. a big butch warrior, so I call him Isol. I've just, yesterday, started work on the next book in that series as well. I might do another non-fiction book. I haven't decided yet. I've got two ideas I'd like to look at, and I'm going to see if either of them sticks.
0: So after Clash of Kings, it's your non-fiction book that comes out next, isn't it? That's
1: right, yes, yes. Hopefully it'll be out at the end of January. It's been a, a really interesting process working on a non-fiction book. It's very, very different to writing fiction. Yeah,
0: that's about Mercian women, isn't
1: it? It's about the women of Saxon England oh, Sa- in the 10th century. So it's more, to be honest, it's a little bit more Wessex based because it's about the royal family. But there is a chapter called Mercian Wives. So that's when we get all our Mercians. <laughs> so that that's good. We've got Mercian wives, English wives, the Continental Connection, and a a few other little... There's a lot of uh, religious women as well. So Edward the Elder had at least three sons and possibly, let me get this right, nine daughters. So he had eight or nine daughters, so... We don't actually know for sure how many he has. I wonder if he did. <laughs> Some of them have got very confusing names. Like I've spoken about Lady Adgafu or well, one of the daughters is also called adgafu So mm. that's quite difficult. Get your adgafus in order. So yes, that's the next one that's coming out. Then I've got a new Coal Wolf. Then I've got another Isol. I purposely sat down in December and I went, I, I want 2024 to be much calmer because 2023 has been manic. Absolutely manic. I've just, I've been doing things all over the place. And then I I sort of had a look and I went, oh, well, I've already got like four books slated for release next year. So how's that taking it easier? But I suppose what I'm thinking is for 2025, because that's when many of the books that I'm working on this year will come out. So, yes. I'm constantly writing and I'm still working on my (laughs) Earls of Mercia series, which is retelling the final hundred years of Saxon England through the eyes of the Earls of Mercia, Mm. as opposed through the Godwin family, who everybody knows Mm -hmm. about. And if I ever pick up a book on the period and they don't mention the Earls of Mercia, I fling it aside in disgust because they've kind of been written out of history which is a shame. No,
0: I mentioned them. I mentioned them in Silk and the Sword. I'm making sure I did, yeah. Because <laughs> I had to mention Godai, but Lady Godai. That's I good, that's after.
1: good. She's so. a great character as well. I like her. So, yes. So, just more writing, hopefully a bit calmer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Lots more fiction. Oh, and I, I've i got an idea for a new series as well, as well. So, so I might work on that.
0: So, you're going to be busy.
1: <laughs> going to be busy, yes. I like to be busy. I like to be writing. <laughs> Um, Mm. for this year I've I've instigated a new writing routine so one of the things I've always said is the thing I'm good at is I'm good at writing I can sit down and bash out a lot of words quite quickly but last year I found that I had to do it in certain points I could only really concentrate on one project sort of for four months of the year so you know I could write 5,000 words a day for that month but then something else Mm. would come up so this year I'm trying to do 2,000 words a day every day on something and then work on all the other projects as well. So I'm doing all right so far. (laughs) I haven't done today's though. Oh no, I shouldn't have said that. I need need to go and do
0: that. (laughs) Actually, so have I, because I need to get mine done. So (laughs) well, thank you very much, MJ Porter. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I've really enjoyed it. I don't think we stopped laughing all the way through. Apologies to anyone who can't hear it because we're laughing.
1: And not just about scabby heads.
0: <laughs> Although mainly about scabby heads.
1: <laughs> I would just like to say, to, uh, listeners, that none of us have currently got scabby heads. <laughs> I will have by the end of it because I keep doing <laughs> oh, Okay. No, thank you very much. You've made me find out all my notebooks. Oh,
0: thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you.
2: We will let you get back to write your 2,000 words. Thank
1: you very much. Thank you for your time. Yeah, lovely to talk to you. I will see you at H&S 2024.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're in action there. We are.
1: I should be there with some old maps with my mm-hmm. dad, so. Oh, we'll see you then. Right, thank you. I shall let you get back to your Tuesday. Thank you very much. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Chat. yeah. Take care.
2: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. I
0: really enjoyed that discussion so thanks to mj porter join us next time when we have a returning guest angus donald will be joining us to talk about his new serialized series he is um releasing a couple of chapters at a time of um the broken kingdom series which is loosely based on the king arthur story so we've been looking for somebody to talk about brunanborough for a while and we'd also been looking for somebody to talk about king arthur for a while and then angus donald says his new series is king arthur so looking forward to talking to angus so join us next time i'm sharon Benny connolly
2: and i'm Derek burks and we'll see you next time